Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. For fans of the England football team, Tom, the subject of today's podcast is something of a sore point because four years ago when the World Cup was held in Russia, England went on a remarkable run to reach the semi-finals, but were knocked out by the eventual runners-up, Croatia. And um, Croatia is a wonderful country, fascinating history. Tom, you've chosen a subject from Croatian history to focus on today. And who or what are you talking about? Croatian-ish. Because uh, the, the, the focus is um, a period long before the creation of the modern state of Croatia. Okay. And the focus is a man called, he was born Diocles in the third century AD, early 240s AD at a place called Salona. Uh, and today, um, if you've been to the, the city of Split, Solin is uh, it's still there. It's a, a suburb of Split now. Um, but back in the third century AD, it belonged to a region called Dalmatia, which in turn was part of uh, a region of the empire called Illyricum. So Tom, just to jump in for one second. So those people who don't know much about Croatian history, but maybe have been to Croatia, if they've been through Split, they will have seen, won't they, one of the most extraordinary Roman buildings still standing, which is Diocletian's Palace, which is basically the city centre of Split. Yes, it is. And you may be wondering what's the link between this this chap Diocles and Diocletian, well, all will be revealed in due course because um, Diocles is a, f- a figure from a very, very obscure background. Um, he's the son of a scribe who may have been a freedman or may actually have been a slave. So Diocles may conceivably have been born unfree. So he comes absolutely from the bottom of the pile. And yet amazingly, Diocles will become Diocletian. I'm giving away <laughs> giving that away the, the twist. twist. That's the twist. He rules as emperor for over 20 years from 284 to 305. So h- how is it possible that someone from the bottom of the social order could have risen to become not just emperor, but you know, ruling for two decades? And the answer to that lies in uh, the circumstances into which he is born, which is one of utter convulsion and chaos for the Roman Empire. It's basically a kind of 50-year period of, of anarchy that almost sees um, the Roman order implode completely. And it's in conditions of chaos that people uh, from outside the, um, the the social elites can rise to the top. And this is what people call the, the crisis of the third century, isn't it? Crisis doesn't really... <laughs> doesn't really do it justice right um so so essentially it it sees the entire order of the roman empire as it had been set up by augustus and which had prevailed for essentially two centuries it sees it pretty much on its uppers so the essence of the augustan settlement the 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 the, the imperial order that he creates out of the the collapse of the republic which had been the previous kind of great process of convulsion and near collapse that the Roman order had gone through, is that um, it's an autocracy. You have rule by one man, an imperator comes, you know, the emperor, but that it is done in association with the Senate. And Augustus pretends that uh, he is less powerful um, than he actually is. And the Senate has the illusion that it is more powerful than it really is. And so senators they rise up through a kind of chain of, 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 of military and civilian commands 
and um, they they're they're providing the the emperor with his with with the elites that enable the the empire to be administered, and this had served um, the Roman order very well for about two centuries, but then in the third century it all goes to pot, um, and it's a, a vast kind of conflux of circumstances that um, we don't really have time to focus in on too too, and I think that we should do an. A, a, you know, maybe a series of episodes on this process because it's yeah. very, very, very interesting, and maybe mildly topical when we look at <laughs> the state of Britain and Europe at the moment. Oh no, Tom, don't um, say that. <laughs> but uh, you know, if we if we want to cheer ourselves up now, uh, yeah. things were far, far worse in the Roman Empire in the third century. So what you have, you have um, huge pressure on the frontiers. So you have the barbarians along the Rhine and the Danube, which had always been there, but they're, they're kind of tribal entities that are conglomerating. So becoming, they're able to execute more and more pressure. Yeah. But the real problem is, is that in the East, the Parthian Empire, which had been a rather ramshackle entity, has collapsed and been replaced by a much more aggressive and efficient imperial order under a Persian dynasty called the the, the Sassanids, so the Sasanian Empire. Yeah. Um, and that is a, a, a superpower fit to rival Rome. So for the first time, it's up against a kind of equal power. Uh, and that, that generates huge pressure. At the same time, within the fabric of the empire itself, you have a succession of civil wars, People grasping after the, uh, the, the 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 imperial purple being dispatched. So, at, you know, at various points you have maybe three, four, five people in very very rapid succession yeah. um, in charge. So you have civil war, you have external war. The, the the consequent effect of this is the collapse of the tax base. You see uh, fields, particularly along the frontiers, turning to weeds. Um, cities are left as as charred and pillaged piles of rubble. So these are pe- these are regions that are no longer paying taxes. Uh, as a result, uh, the emperors need to impose ever higher taxes on those who can pay. That in turn generates economic collapse. Economic collapse in turn generates famine. On top of that, you get cycles of plague starting to sweep in. Remember, we had um, an episode with Carl Harper on this. Yeah. Absolutely kind of horrendous process. So it's, it, it, it's a terrible state of affairs. And essentially, in this process of anarchy, the one key institution, the only institution that is capable of maintaining some kind of order, it's not the Senate, it's the army. Right. Because these emperors who are rising and falling, are these generally rival commanders, basically, being elevated by their troops? Uh, yes, by and large. Uh, and to begin with, they're from the senatorial class. But increasingly, with all the pressure that you're getting on the frontiers, the absolute kind of uh, requirement for efficient military leadership, having some kind of amateur guy come in for a couple of years is inadequate. You need a, a, a professional officer class. right? Um, and so what happens over the course of the third century is that uh, you get this kind of elite army corps, protectorates, they are called, who start to replace the senators as people in charge of the legions and the, and the, the, the uh, auxiliary forces. And most of these tend to come from the Balkans. They're called Illyrici, so people right. from Illyricum. Um, and that's because these, uh, these are, 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 are tough, brutal guys who are not produced from the flesh pots of Italy. They are, they are raised to, to fight, yeah. and they are essentially the most effective military operators in the empire. Senators hate them, of course. But more and more, they are coming to run the army, um, and this is the ba- the background into which Diocles, who is you know he he is from Illyricum, this is what he's born into, and Gibbon, who 
you know, his account of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is the, the great narrative account of this process, says of Diocles that his abilities were useful rather than splendid. And I guess that that sums up the whole kind of warrior cast from Illyricum. Right. They are useful. They're not splendid. They do not have a background in Virgil. They yeah. are not able to construe Greek poetry. They do not have a knowledge of philosophy. But their abilities are very, very useful in a time of, of invasion and yeah. civil war. They're kind of hard-headed, military, yeah. ruthless fixers. Yes. And the par- in a way, the paradox is that, that Diocles, you know, he, he, he has no real education beyond that that his father as a scribe can give him. So he's, he's literate, but he doesn't have the, the kind of the equivalent of, um, you know, a, a doctorate from Oxford or, yeah. uh, you know, being to Stanford, that kind of level. He doesn't have that. But what he does have is a sense of himself as Roman in the traditional sense, the traditional hard, tough, kind of re- early Republican sense, the turnip-eating peasant <laughs> who goes out and defeats the Samnites or the Carthaginians, that kind yeah. of thing. He's aware of that, and he's a very pious person. He feels that uh, the dues have to be paid to the traditional gods and that perhaps the traditional dues haven't been paid, and this is why the gods are punishing the Roman people. So although he would be despised by a senator as a barbarian, he sees himself as a deeply, deeply Roman figure. And so he's very proud to serve in the Roman army. He's very good at it. He rises to the command of a, a squadron of troops on the on the Danube. And meanwhile, as he is rising up through the ranks of, of the army, what you are seeing is uh, people from Illyricum not just rising to the command of legions, but becoming emperors. And they they prove themselves to be excellent emperors. So, who what what sort of names are, are we talking about, Tom? So, uh, there's there's a guy called Claudius who right. not not the, the, the Claudius, not the Claudius yeah. who conquers Britain, but the Claudius who people who listen to our episode on Saint Valentine's Day may remember that we we talked about her. You know, there's a, a Claudius who supposedly executed a, a Valentine. This is this is the Claudius, but he's he's a very effective leader. He defeats a, an enormous Gothic invasion over the Danube. Uh, you have a guy called Aurelian who oh, yeah. at a time when the empire is falling apart at the seams, you've got people declaring independence in Gaul, in the East, all over the place. He stitches it all back together very, very effectively. He's also the guy who builds the walls around Rome itself, yeah. uh, you know, which is a real kind of measure of the time that even the even the, uh, the eternal city needs protection. And then you have a guy called Probus, who... <laughs> right. <laughs> who, as his name implies, is is he, he goes in hard, he goes in deep, and uh, <laughs> thanks for that, Tom. <laughs> and and he he rules for about six years, and he's very very militarily successful, and he 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 pushes back uh, again anyone who dares to kind of cross the the Rhine, the Danube, um, the, the the frontier with Persia. And in fact, um, at the end of his uh, life, he's preparing an invasion of of Mesopotamia, which is very traditional Roman behavior. Carrying the fight to the enemy. Carrying the fight to the enemy. And also he is he he feels able to kind of reinstate a form of the the traditional constitutional order, the um the the, the traditional relationship between the Emperor and the Senate. So he's he's kind of feeling that he's he's able to inch his way back to to restoring that traditional relationship. Um and that may be why when he dies inevitably in a mutiny, you know, this is happening all the time. Um, the guy who follows him, a guy called Carus. I mean, he's the kind of figure who you might recognise from the second century. He's he's born in Gaul. He's been raised in Rome. He's a senator. Uh, his rise through the ranks. He's he's. It's not just been military. He's also held civic offices. And in a way, he as it will turn out, he's almost the last of a kind. 
So he right. perhaps is the last of these traditional civilian Augustan figures who rises to become emperor. But he's only in power for about nine months. Um, he rushes out. He takes control of the um, uh, the invasion that Probus had been preparing of Mesopotamia, a bit like Alexander taking yeah. over after Philip is murdered. And he launches an invasion of Mesopotamia. All goes tremendously well. He uh, he captures Tessaphon, the, um, the, 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 the capital of the Sassanid Empire. The Sassanid king is very distracted by civil wars himself. Diocles goes as commander of his cavalry. The commander of the Praetorians, a man called Arius Apper, is also there. All seems to be going splendidly. And then Carus dies in the summer of 283, so nine months after he became emperor. And the story is, is that he got struck by lightning. Oh, gets, that's gets bad incinerated luck. by a lightning bolt. That's incredible bad luck, Tom. It is. And it's so it's such incredible bad luck that that inevitably people have have wondered whether it, it really was credible. But let's yeah. say it did happen. So Carus has two sons. One is a guy called Carinus, who is yeah. in who's back in Rome, and the other is a guy called Numerian, very Tolkien-esque name, I think. Yeah. Um, who is there with with him and with the legions. Oh, I know what happens to Numerian. But go on, tell the story. I love this story. Numerian is is becomes is proclaimed kind of co-emperor with his brother yeah. Carinus back in Rome. And they decide to withdraw because Numerian wants to go back and, and make sure that um, you know he's not going to be stabbed in the back by his brother. They're marching back, very slow process back. Numerian ends up being confined to his litter. And Arius Appa, the Praetorian prefect, says that this is because he's got bad eyes. You know, he 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 can't wear shades. <laughs> The sun is very bright in his eyes, so he has well, to... Well, the desert. It'd be bad for you. It wouldn't be bad for your eyes, Tom. He has to lie in his, his litter with, you know, kind of wet flannel over his <laughs> over his eyes. And they go on and on, back, back and back. And various soldiers who approach the litter start to report <laughs> an, un, an unpleasant smell <laughs> coming coming from the litter. <laughs> and, what could um, it be? And Arius Appa says, it's absolutely nothing. He's, he's, the emperor is very well. Um, he's got some personal <laughs> hygiene problems, but you know, which of us hasn't. And this is where Gibbon ever skeptical yeah. says, could no aromatics be found in the Imperial household. <laughs> uh, and sure enough, um, they've reached the Bosphorus Nicomedia city right. uh, south of, of, of what will become Constantinople, uh, on the South side. And, um, they, they peep behind the curtain <laughs> And there is Numerian looking very, very dead indeed. Presumably bright green by this, <laughs> by this point. point. Yes. Yeah, yeah he's, he's really not looking good. And there are, there, there are two things to be decided. The first is who is responsible for the, for, for, for the death of Numerian? You know, do he die of natural <laughs> yeah. causes or was he murdered? And the second is who's going to replace him? And there are really two candidates. One is Arius Appa, the Praetorian prefect. And the yeah. other is Diocles, the commander of the horse. And they they all head off to a kind of ca- a military council at Chalcedon, which is just up the coast from uh, from Nicomedia. And it's basically it's Appa against Diocles, who's going to become emperor. And it's Diocles who wins, and Diocles wins by saying that Appa has murdered Numerian. Well, is that a reasonable a reasonable yes a reasonable supposition? But I think a bit. But the the paucity of our sources and the fact that that Diocles wins and is then emperor yeah. for yeah. two decades means it's perfectly possible that perhaps he he did. I mean, we don't know. Yes, of course. But basically, but, but basically, what happens then is that so this is um, uh, late November two eight four. Diocles goes back to Nicomed- to a hill outside Nicomedia, and he adopts the splendid name of Gaius Aurelius Valerius Diocletianus. So Diocletian, yep. Yep. on this hill, 
He then has Appa dragged out in chains to stand behind him, tells the assembled legions that Appa is the man who killed Numerian. He draws out his sword, stabs uh, stabs Appa, runs him through, and he is now emperor in the east. However, there's a yeah. problem because listeners may remember that the, the unfortunate Numerian had a brother, That's right, Carinus, Carinus, who is still back in Rome. Now, the reports on Carinus make him sound a, a, an absolute rotter. Kind of up, there, up, up there with Caligula and Nero. Well, so he uh, apparently he has a succession of wives and he gets each one pregnant. And then he's so revolted by the fact that he's got them pregnant that he dumps them and moves on to another one. And this is just a, a typical example of his disgraceful behavior. That's the kind of behavior you see on the man online sidebar of shame every day, though, Tom. Yes. Yeah, so, so he, he is on the, he, he's put in the sidebar of shame by uh, Diocletian's propagandists. But right. in fact, he, he, he seems to have been pretty effective, pretty efficient. And he collects together an army. He marches out from Rome. He, he marches into the Balkans. He meets with, uh, with Diocletian at a place called Margus, very near. Uh, where Belgrade is today, and he he's he's on the verge of winning the battle when he too gets assassinated. Oh, and again, you may wonder. Well, you know, people who come up against Diocletian, yeah, <laughs> they all they all seem to get come to grisly ends. Um, so he's assassinated just at the moment of victory, and Diocletian becomes emperor, and he's the sole emperor. So Diocletian at this stage is how old, roughly? About 40. And do we know anything about him in those first 40 years, other than the rise up the ranks? Not really, no. Apart from the fact that he is from this very humble background, that he has no real cultural hinterland, but he sees he he is a very patriotic Roman. He's a very devout uh, in the in the kind of the, the sense of you know the ancient traditions of yeah. of the of the Roman city. He despises oddly, paradoxically, that the city of Rome itself. So okay. um he does not go to Rome to have his powers ratified by the Senate. And clearly the reason for this is that he's rubbing the noses of the Senate in the fact that they, they're, they're obsolete. Um, right. He's, you know, that, and over the course of his, his rule, what he will do is essentially terminate the entire Augustan settlement. And his rule will probably be the most decisive, um, the most influential since the time of Augustus, because it will end up putting the Roman Empire on entirely new foundations. Ooh. And I think we should uh, we should take a break at this That's point. That's a great cliffhanger, Tom. Very exciting. An institutional cliffhanger. We don't have enough of those. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when we come back, we'll have a look at how he did it. Great. See you in a minute. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the history of Croatia. Well, Croatia-ish, according to Tom Holland. So we're talking about probably, I mean, you could argue the most famous, the most influential, the most important historical character to have ever come from the lands that we now know as Croatia, and that is the Roman Emperor Diocletian. So Tom, he's just become emperor. Yeah. All kinds of, there's been lightning bolts, there's been people turning green in letters, um, all kinds (laughs) kinds of stuff. All kinds of carry on. Yeah. But now Diocletian (laughs) is the man, he hates Rome, but he likes Romanitas, I suppose, is yep. fair to say. Yeah, wonderfully put. And um, he wants to, well, he wants to make Rome great again, but he's a modern, he's not just a traditionalist, he's a modernizer as well. Is that right? He's a kind of cultural traditionalist, but an institutional modernizer. Nobody in Rome would characterize themselves as modernizers. Um, right. You, you, you introduce radical reforms by saying that you're going back to the past. Yeah. And w- what Diocletian is doing is he's trying to get Rome back to its rugged military self that he sees as having been lost. 
but initially his his job is the job that's been confronting Roman emperors for at least 50 years, which is basically to try and stabilize what is absolute chaos. So there are barbarians crashing across the Danube. So that's what Diocletian in person, he goes to sort that off. There's also a huge crisis in Gaul. There are uh, barbarians that have crossed the Rhine, but there are also... Um, Basically, it's, it's, it's the, the, the Gilets Jaunes are making their first appearance in northern Gaul. They're right. called the Bagaudai. They're objecting to the enormous amounts of tax that are being imposed on them. They are kind of coming out with their tractors and their yellow jackets right. and dumping manure in the streets of Lutetia <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So they need to be sorted out. Yeah. And the other very 21st century Europe thing that's happened is that um, a guy called Carousius has launched Brexit. Of course so, he has. So, yes. So he he's a kind of um, he's the commander of the Saxon shore forts. So he's commander of the kind of the, the Channel Fleet, um, and he has declared a kind of unilateral independence. Although it's not actually a full Brexit because he he sees himself as Roman as well, and he basically sees himself as an equal of Diocletian. So all of this has to be sorted out. Yeah. Uh, the the barbarians need to be pushed back. Um, the Bagaudi need to be crushed. And Britannia needs to be brought back into the fabric of of the Roman Empire. And Diocletian sets about doing this very effectively in a rather novel way. So he himself campaigns in the Balkans, does it very effectively, right. flings them back uh, into the wilds beyond the, uh, the the Danube. But he takes on a partner. So he adopts a guy called Maximian as his son and gives him the title of Caesar. Diocletian's own title is Augustus. He gives Maximian the title of Caesar. So this is, is this the first time that happened, Tom? Uh, this is the first time that it's as institutionalized. So, so essentially Maximian is his partner. You know, he, he, he is equal. And this is quite a novelty because essentially what Diocletian is, is saying is that it's, he is unable to cope or anyone is unable to cope right. with the rule of the entire empire. He needs an autonomous fellow emperor covering the West. He, he, he basically takes responsibility for the East. And so he appoints this guy, Maximian. To, to the rule of the West. And Maximian, like Diocles, is an Illyrian peasant. He's a seasoned general. He's, you know, he's got the kind of classic square head of the third century. <laughs> is that uh, what people uh, have? Balkan square heads? Judging by the, by the sculpture, there's a yeah. very kind of cubist trend in Roman sculpture at this point. They all have these kind of terrifying square heads and short hair, um, right. like the kind of minders that Djokovic had when he went to... Uh, yeah you know when he refuses yeah. to take vaccines the men you would expect to see outside guarding the entrance to a, a nightclub turbo folk uh, drifting down the street um, yes a, a, a massive german bmw outside that kind of thing absolutely that kind of thing and um maximian is a very very effective general he he lacks diocletian's cunning and ability to see the kind of whole the kind of statesmanship that diocletian comes to show but right. he's, he's an effective operator. He goes off to Gaul. He crushes the Bagaudi. He, he, as Diocletian had done, pushes the barbarians back, in his case, back beyond the Rhine. And he then has to deal with Crassus. But he, he can't do that because he can't raise a fleet. Ugh. So it's a, bit, it's a bit like Napoleon trying to raise a fleet, yeah. uh, you know, to seize control of the channel. He, he, he lacks control of the shipping lanes. And so he can't get his forces over to Britain. So Crassus is kind of thumbing his nose at Maximian and, of course, Diocletian. And so this brings home to Diocletian that that maybe even more um, wholesale reform is needed. So in 286, he promotes Maximian to Augustus. So there are now two Augusti. Right. And this is kind of key innovation. Two emperors. However, at the same time, it's also not an innovation because, of course, 
the the idea that power should be divided between two people is actually a primordial Roman idea going back to the consulship because classically the Romans had two consuls. And so this is kind of classic classic Diocletian maneuver. On the one hand, it's a radical innovation that there can be two Augusti. On the other, it's kind of back to the future. You're going back to the primordial origins of the Roman Republic and the entire Roman state. As people remember from our podcasts about Caesar crossing the Rubicon or indeed the downfall of Cleopatra, the idea of dividing power between two yes. or more people. Yes. You know, it's part of the the great stories of Roman history, isn't it? The division between Antony and Octavian or something. But they have the type both have the title of Augustus, but of course it's a repudiation of the the autocracy that the original Augustus had himself introduced. So there are all right. kinds of paradoxes yeah. lurking around there. And Diocletian proclaims himself to be the son of Jupiter, so he takes on the title of Jovius. You know, Jove is alternative name for Jupiter. Right. Uh, and Maximian is cast as the son of Heracles, so he takes on the name of Herculius. So these are peasants who are now basically divine. They're semi-divine. Tom, can I just ask about their names? So uh, Maximian had been Caesar, and then he's promoted to Augustus. So obviously there's a sense at this point that Caesar, which was originally a name, has become a title. Yeah. But is there a sort of – is it Diocletian who dreams up the fact that Caesar will be junior to Augustus, or was there already a sense that Augustus was a superior title to Caesar? Well, so C- Caesar, as you say, is a family name that becomes um, one that is adopted by everyone who becomes emperor. Yeah. Um, so it's a name that ultimately derives from the Roman aristocracy. But Augustus is a title that conveys an almost supernatural quality. Yeah. You know, you're, you're midway between the earthly and the divine midway between the mortal and the human so so to, it, to, to be an augustus is better than being a caesar do you not think that all british prime ministers should become a walpole <laughs> yeah it'd be quite good wouldn't it yeah yeah some i think it's fair to say tom would do greater justice <laughs> to the name than others yes I, I mean what the equivalent of augustus would be i don't know kind uh, of god well, or something god, um, god. yeah <laughs> So if yes. you do very well, you, you become God, otherwise you're Walpole. Yeah, I mean, that kind of idea. Right. And in fact, in 292, yeah. Diocletian makes the system even more complicated because he, he, he and Maximian both adopt very successful, very able deputies who then take on the name of Caesar, and they're all emperors now. So you now have four emperors. So you have uh, a tetrarchy, four rulers yes. in Greek. So this has always fascinated me, Tom. I love the the Tetrarchy. I think it's just so strange. So first of all, it comes at the end of a period in which basically emperors have been rising and falling about every two weeks or something, like British prime ministers and present yeah. day. Yeah. And um, it's extraordinary self-confidence on Diocletian's part to share his power with what p- people that somebody, a lesser man, might have seen as military rivals, isn't it? It is, and I think I think it's a reflection both on um, Diocletian's self confidence, but also uh, his cunning and his ability to to choose the right people. So that's the key. Yeah, he chooses people he he completely trusts. But it's not just trust; it's it's also people who lack the ability to rival him. So Maximian right. is a you know he's a he's a kind of solid deputy. Yeah, he's the kind of guy that a, a, a mafia boss would want at his back. But he's not get, he, he's he's not smart enough. He's not imaginative enough to rule the whole empire. And do the four tetrarchs do they ever hold kind of board meetings all together where they discuss policy? They, they do. So in March two nine three, Maximian meets with his the guy who he he adopts as his son. So Caesar, a guy called Constantius. Right. 
Meanwhile, in, in, in Sirmium, which is now in, in Serbia, Diocletian is adopting a guy called Galerius. So the, 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 the Western Augustus and the Western Caesar and the Western and, and the Eastern Augustus and the Eastern Caesar are, are meeting up. The empire is kind of roughly divided up. So, um, Constantius gets the territory beyond the Alps, so Gaul and the responsibility for finishing off Carousius. Um, Maximian gets Italy and Africa. Yeah. Um, Galerius gets Greece and the Balkans and Diocletian gets the rest. Right. Yeah. So Diocletian keeps for himself the richest provinces, basically. So that's not utterly dissimilar from the divisions that you'd seen in previous periods in Roman history, the basic east-west kind of division, I suppose. It's following the fracture lines of geography. Yeah. So the Alps is an obvious division line. The Adriatic is an obvious dividing line. Yes. And these are the fracture lines that again and again over the course of Roman history keep kind of splitting apart. You always want the east because the east is the richest cities, the most urbanized, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. But in a way that, that, that the sense that they're getting, uh, you know, the equivalent of provinces is, is not entirely, I mean, it's kind of true, but it's not entirely true because they are all equally emperors. Right. So. There's there's a geographical specificity, but there's also a sense that you know if if one of them goes to another part of the empire, they're still equally emperor. Yeah, um, and they all of them are very very successful. So all of them, like Diocletian, are Illyrian peasants, rustic, uncultured, but great. They prove to be great great servants of the empire. You know, they're seasoned by hardship, they're seasoned by war. They they do what has to be done. Tom, are you look? I I never would have guessed that you would have such a a fondness for kind of Balkan warlords. I d- I'm not fond of them. They're terrifying figures. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're brutal, terrifying figures, and you would not want to run up against them. But when you're in a condition where the alternative is complete collapse and anarchy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's the age-old decision. What's worse, um, anarchy or, or brutal order? You know my views, Tom. I do know your views. And I think that, you know, I, I would, if I was a barbarian, I wouldn't be in favour of them. Um <laughs> But probably if I was a guy, you know, trying to run a business in right in Gaul, I'd, yeah. I'd be very keen. You're, you're on your own double glazing <laughs> so, yeah. company, and you smack need a firm government. Yeah, you need the smack yeah. of firm government. So it all goes very well. Constantius ends up retaking Britain. So there's a famous medallion in the British Museum, the only illustration from the Roman period of London, where he's shown riding in on a horse, being greeted by uh, cheering by, by uh, the kneeling figure of Londinium. Uh, there's a rebellion in Egypt which Diocletian suppresses. Yeah. And best of all, and the real marker that Rome is back, there's a brilliant war against the Persians. I love a brilliant war. Fabulously well. Fabulously well. Um, so, it, and in fact, it goes so well that uh, Diocletian and uh, Galerius, who uh, have teamed up for this, actually managed to capture um, the, uh, the Persian royal family. So again, Crikey. like Alexander, Alexander yeah. captures the Persian royal family. Diocletian does the same, uh, and he is a and the Persian king is so so desperate to get them back that he agrees to pretty humiliating terms. So this is um, a treaty signed at a place called Nisibis on the uh, the Roman Persian frontier in two nine nine, and it sees the, um, the the Roman frontier massively massively strengthened. So this has been a source of weakness and instability for. Uh, decades and decades and decades for Rome. And now it's massively, massively strengthened. And this yeah. is, you know, this is probably the single most important contribution that Diocletian makes to the stability of the Roman Empire. It's to shore up the East. He shores up the East. And that then enables him, gives him the breathing space to turn to the kind of reforms that no emperor has had for, for you know, 60 years. You know, the functioning of the economy. 
yeah. uh, the functioning of the administration, all that kind of thing. So Diocletian's reforms are incredibly significant, and they basically provide the the foundations for what will become the Byzantine Empire. So they will survive the collapse of the Roman Empire in the East, and they will provide the underpinnings for Roman provincial administration up until the the, the, the coming of the Arabs in the 7th century. So right. these are very, very momentous. Obviously, his focus, as it's been for every emperor, is the army. So he he increases forces, he improves fortifications. So a lot of the um, the most impressive Roman fortifications that that survive are from this period. You know, they're they're right expressive of a kind of revolutionary approach to how you defend places, um, and he is able to pay for this because he has simultaneously introduced a bureaucracy that is closer to that of China than the traditional Roman kind of decentralized form where you have you know, people from senatorial backgrounds kind of rising up and employing freed yeah. men or equestrians or whatever. Um, this is, this is a, a, a kind of a, a bureaucracy that obeys a, um, a kind of chain of command pretty much like the army. I was about to say it's a much more militarized state under the isn't it? It is. So basically the whole of the Roman Empire exists to raise money, to pay troops, to defend it so that money can be raised to pay the troops. Right. So it's it, it's a military fiscal complex is yeah. perhaps the best way to put it's it. It's a sort of self-perpetuating tax-raising machine. Yes. And so from this point on, uh, Roman emperors and their servants, you know, they have a much heavier tread than emperors in previous generations had had. Right. Um, and he is a very efficient administrator. He restructures the Augustan provincial system entirely. So um, he divides the provinces up into much smaller units. Do you know the name of the um, the people who are put in charge of these kind of much smaller units? Um, It'll be very popular with, with, uh, with a lot of the, uh, the more clerical wangs that we have. Um, right. the, uh, <laughs> are they called deacons no they're called vicars vicars so diocletian in the hour of the the empire's need yeah trusts the, the administration to vicars to an army of vicars an army of vicars uh but they're also larger units uh, right. which are called dioceses ah. yeah. and italy loses its its privileges so it becomes a kind of region much like anywhere else so right. it, it is it now starts to be taxed for the first time quick question about diocletian where does he spend most of his time he spends most of his time in Nicomedia. So that's where is, he, Isnik in, Isnik. in yeah, yes. Turkey. Yeah. Yes. Uh but he but, you know, he he he's peripatetic. He kind of roams across across the Balkans and across the East. He is very, very keen on people showing him the kind of respect that people show the the, the Persian Emperor's respect. So uh he introduces this custom of proskinesis that had Crikey. been a, yeah. a, a cause of, of outrage to Romans and to Greeks for centuries and centuries. Alexander the Great had terrible which, trouble with this. Yes, so it's, this is prostration. This is uh, people coming into the presence of the um, the emperor, have to bow, they have to prostrate themselves. Um, and this is very, very not what Augustus had done. You know, the whole yeah. thing about Augustus was that he was pretending to be a senator like anyone else. Uh, this is the absolute office, opposite. Diocletian is insisting that people who come into the presence of an Augustus or a Caesar show the respect that is due to him as the head of the Roman state. Does that plus the bureaucracy suggest that the Roman Empire is, for want of a better word, and I know this isn't the ideal word, being orientalized? Is it becoming more Persianized? Because you mentioned China, say a Chinese-style bureaucracy. 
are the Romans getting a lot of these ideas from Persia and perhaps beyond that, though they might not know it, from powers further east? I mean, I think that the, the custom of proskinesis does come from Persia. So to that extent, perhaps you could say yes. But I think that um, the fact that Diocletian ends up constructing a bureaucracy that, that, that does parallel that in China is, is simply a reflection of the fact that there are only certain ways that you can order an emperor, a, a large empire. Yeah. Reflects the fact that, that there are only certain ways you can structure an empire in a pre-industrial age. And yeah. that, you know, Rome had begun as a city and a republic. And in the face of the crisis that it faces in the third century, those ancient traditions are inadequate to cope with the scale of, of what is required. And that is why you have this, this kind of this heavy tread and this obsession that Diocletian shows with basically trying to impose order on everything. And he can only impose order if he has the military and the bureaucracy you know, he can say, do this, and they go off and do it in a way yeah. that simply hadn't existed before. And the measure of how keen he is to do this is that he starts to try and impose order wherever he sees chaos. So notoriously, one of them, one of the ways he does this, he he's desperate to stop inf- inflation, which is completely out of control. Um, so he, uh, he, he tries to stabilize the currency. He introduces uh, gold and silver coinage. Um, but he inflation still continues to raise, and so notoriously he introduced in three hundred one he introduces this edict on maximum prices. Oh yeah, which is quite. Uh, I mean, that's quite what it's quite Harold Wilson, <laughs> right? Yes, it is. It's quite very Edward Heath. Uh, it's very Ted um, Heath. Harold Wilson, Heath. Richard Nixon, Richard, Richard Nixon, Nixon was yeah, pretty from price controls so, by the early seventies. <laughs> so essentially, he what what, uh, what what Diocletian is doing? He has no understanding of economics. He looks right. at prices rising. He assumes the only reason for this can be that all the merchants are being greedy. And yeah. so he imposes Stop a it. list. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. This is how much things have to cost, and you're not allowed to go any higher. Yeah. And, of course, for economic historians, it's fascinating. People love to write about this yeah. period, don't they? It, I mean, it, it gives us a complete list of what prices were, what they should be. Uh, it, really, really interesting. Of course, yeah. it doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't work. But, but, but Diocletian's ambition to to stabilize the currency by improving the gold content and the silver content does work. And although because in it's due been course, progressively devalued, hasn't it, the yes, Roman currency? Although in decades. due course, the, the silver standard will be abandoned, the gold standard will be preserved, and the gold solidus will become the basis for the Byzantine recovery in due course. Right. The other even more notorious attempt to impose order is an attempt to impose order on the dimension of the supernatural. Yes, so, I thought we'd get to this. So in the, in the wake of the Treaty of Nisibis, which he signed with the with the, with the Persians, he he is now able to ask the kind of theological question: Why have things been going so badly? Now that I've stabilised the eastern frontier, I can start to to try and make things up to the gods who have clearly been angered. Um, and he arrives in Antioch, which is after Rome and Alexandria, the third city in the empire in in Syria. And while he's there, a Christian deacon called Romanus, he comes from Caesarea just down the coast, tries to stop sacrifices to the gods. This for Diocletian clarifies everything that's been going wrong. There are groups of people that have emerged who are disrespectful of the gods, who, who yeah. don't believe in the gods, who are scorning them. Uh, there, are, there are people called Manichaeans who are followers of a, a Persian prophet called Mani. So Diocletian launches a, a campaign of persecution against them. But Romanus is a Christian. And so it's the Christians that become the main focus of his ambition. So Romanus himself, he has his tongue cut off. He's taken to prison. He's executed. 
uh, Diocletian and Galerius, and again, you asked, you know, do they meet up? Absolutely, they do. Diocletian and Galerius ha- have a consultation about what they should do about the Christians. Diocletian is happy just to stop Christians from being allowed to, ha- to hold office. Galerius wants to go much further. He says we should have um, a-, a-, a campaign of extermination. And Diocletian says, well, we should consult the oracle. So they go to the oracle of, of Apollo at, at um, Didymus. And Apollo says, yeah, go for it. <laughs> right. Oh, go who, for it. Go who flat out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, February 303, Diocletian by this point is back in Nicomedia. There's a church that had just been built there and he has it raised to the ground. And the following day, he issues an edict against the Christians. Yeah. For a notorious edict. Yeah. So by the terms of this edict, uh, all the scriptures are destroyed. Every Christian is required to hand over their scriptures. And so the people who do this are called traditores, which means people who hand over. And so for, for Christians, devout Christians, these, these, are, these traditores are traitors. And that's where we get the word traitor from. It's, it's from this time. So is that so? A traditor is originally someone who hands over scriptures. Tom, that is one of the, the best facts I've learned in all these oh, wow. All these episodes of the rest is history. It's a, it's a top fact. It's a great fact. Um, churches continue to be pulled down yeah. uh, and Christians are banned from assembling um, to worship. And in the immediate wake of this, this uh, the publication of this edict, there are a series of fires in Nicomedia uh, where sections of, of Diocletian's palace get burnt down. And Diocletian assumes that this is Christians. And in fact, yeah. he, he regards Nicomedia as being so unsafe that he leaves. So he sees himself basically as as a target of kind of terrorism. And so he, he he sees the persecution of Christians as a war on terror. And when Christians are captured, they are executed very horribly. Um, some of them are kind of roasted over fires. And the memory of this persecution will live very, very long in the, in the memory of the church. I mean, it still does to this day. The, Diocleti- the Diocletianic persecution yeah. is, is remembered as absolutely the worst. Um, although I, I think the, the motor for it is Galerius. It's Galerius who is really, really even more hostile than Diocletian. Right. Diocletian absolutely puts his name to it. However, in the West, Maximian and Constantius, they, they, they don't really push it through. So it's really in the East and, and that, that you, it, it, it's the absolute worst. Do they not push it through in the West partly because perhaps there are fewer Christians? It's not such a big deal. It's not so urban. Maybe Christianity hasn't taken off as much as it has in the East. Is that one reason? Yes, it may be. I think. I think also that they just don't have the kind of ideological animus, right? That, that Diocletian seems to have had. And so, all of this is by way. You know, it's a radical, radical process of reform. It transforms the Roman Empire utterly and permanently. But Diocletian sees himself as a traditionalist, and so in due course, in November three hundred three, he visits Rome for the first and last time. I mean, it's possible that he visited Rome very fleetingly in the very early months of his his reign, but I think it's unlikely right. because he seems to have viewed this visit to Rome as being a, a kind of celebration of the fact that he has restored to the Roman people their, 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 their traditional customs and therefore their traditional greatness because the two for, for Diocletian are, are mutually independent. And so he goes to Rome and he celebrates the 20th anniversary of his rule and a triumph that is the, the very last pagan triumph to be celebrated in Rome. Right. But he, he hates Rome and he is appalled by, by what, <laughs> by what Gibbon calls the licentious familiarity of the Romans. Oh no. What are they doing to him? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so he, he, uh, he, he leaves by the end of the year. It's, it's December. It's cold. He gets a chill. 
um, and he just falls increasingly ill. He he gets to to Nicomedia by November the following year, makes a public appearance, and then collapses. Uh, and it's feared that he's going to die. Yeah, but he doesn't. But um, March three hundred five, he reemerges, but he's an absolute shadow of himself. Uh, and two months later, he goes to the hill where he had um, been proclaimed emperor, where he'd taken on the name of Diocletianus, um, and uh, he there for the first time, for the first time ever, he he abdicates. So he's the first Roman emperor. Um, to give up the purple. Well, that that's the most extraordinary detail of this story at all, I think, Tom, that he lays down his command, yeah. which is something that not even Augustus or Tiberius, those first emperors, had felt able or had wanted to do. Tiberius, I think, kind of did want to do it. And I but, think if it had been an option, he would have done it. But so he retires to the company, do but he it. doesn't. He doesn't, yeah. know. And Tiberius says, well, you know, you, you can't, you, you're holding a wolf by its ears. When you're emperor, you're holding a wolf by its ears. And so you can't let go of those ears because if you do, the wolf will turn and savage you and, and, right. and, and rip but you But Diocletian was confident that he wouldn't be prosecuted. He wouldn't be, no one would come after him. He is. And I think that that's a, a reflection in his his confidence in the people that he's chosen and yeah. in his hope that just as he's instituted very clear kind of cycles of promotion for the military and for the civil service. So the same thing will happen with, with, um, with the rulers of the, of the Roman world. So Galerius who had been Caesar to him becomes Augustus. And does uh, Maximian retire at the same time? Yes. So, so, so Maximian is required to retire as Diocletian does. He doesn't like it. (laughs) He doesn't want to at all. He thinks it's a ridiculous idea, but he's obliged to. Now the question is who will succeed um, Galerius and Constantius as Caesar? Now that they've become, yeah, the they need to choose their own deputies, and I, I think that they had assumed that their sons would. So the son of Constantius is a young man called Constantine, uh-huh. and when Diocletian, when Diocletian resigns the purple, Constantine is there with him on that hill outside Nicomedia, but Constantine does not become Caesar. It's a guy called Maximinus who um, becomes Caesar when uh, in succession to Galerius, who in turn has become the Augustus. Um, and it's a guy called Severus in the in the West. So there's an inherent instability created there because yeah. the sons of the the two Caesars who've now become the Augusti, what is their role? And Constantine manages to slip away, and he goes off to join his brother Constantius, who is busy pacifying Britannia. Uh, and in due course, Constantius will die in York, and Constantine will lay claim directly to to his rule. Yeah, um, with momentous consequences that I'm sure we will do an episode on. We'll do an episode on on Constantine. However, Diocletian, meanwhile, he retires back to his homeland. So he goes back to Dalmatia um, and he goes back to uh, Salona and he he builds a huge palace. He's been building a huge palace there and it's it's built like a kind of fortress. He grows his cabbages there. Yeah, he famously grows cabbages, doesn't yeah. he? And Maximian wants to come back. Maximian's he's retired to southern Italy. He 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 kind of writes to to Diocletian and says, you know, let's get the band back together. Let's <laughs> let's get back on tour. And and Diocletian says, you, you know, you know, if you could see my cabbages that I've grown with my own hands, you wouldn't want to do that. And he dies in three one two. And you know, I think he's the first emperor for a very very long time to, to kind of die in his own bed. Yeah. Um. And by this point, it's evident that the, the tetrarchal system that he set up has failed because civil war has broken out again. And in due course, Constantine will emerge as sole ruler, sole emperor. Yeah. But as I, I, I say, he is very much not a failure 
because the framework that he provides enables the Roman Empire to survive this near-death experience. And in the fourth century, it's it's a ferociously strong and effective imperial uh, or, or entity, uh, very, very, uh, very, very strong. Um, and the the palace that he has has founded, so the Latin for palace is Palatium. Yeah. Um, and in due course, um, Palatium gets shrunk to become split. So the derivation of split is is the Palatium of, oh, I didn't of know Diocletian, that. and it's. Uh, you know, it's it's one of the great sites. Oh, it is of Roman archaeology. For people who don't know, if you go to Split, it's right there on the waterfront. It's huge. I mean, the the the, the corridor, the halls of the palace, are now the streets of this sort of old quarter of of Split, and they're lined with shops and restaurants and ice cream parlors and what have you. But you can still see the app. I mean, you're absolutely right there in the palace and the outline of the palace. It's the most amazing building. If you like the Romans, or indeed if you like Balkan ice creams. It's the, it's the perfect place to go. So I think that's a brilliant end for the Croatian tourist board, and I hope that they will they will they they will appreciate that. Um, and uh, as I say, Diocletian, very 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 significant figure in the history of Rome and in, and indeed in the history of Europe uh, and the, the Mediterranean world more generally. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure, Dominic, that we will do more on the late Roman Empire. Oh, that's fascinating, Tom. I love this period. Uh, we, we must absolutely do Constantine, for instance. But but in the meanwhile, yeah. I hope you enjoyed that. And we will definitely be back. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll be back the day yeah. after. We'll be back the day after that. We're never, we're never uh, going away. <laughs> never going away. We are lingering like the corpse of <laughs> Numerian in his litter. <laughs> that's not how I thought of this podcast, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.